0: motorsport magazine for the very best in motor racing is once a month not enough maybe you want some more then visit our brand new website at motorsportmagazine.com you can read daily features written by the top motor racing writers listen to our acclaimed podcasts featuring star guests and watch videos from the wide world of motoring and racing look out for the new columns on road cars motorcycles and racing history the new gallery of extra images from features in the magazine, the new classified section featuring hundreds of road and race cars, and the new shop, offering subscriptions, back issues, motorsport luggage, and much more. It's all at the brand new website, motorsportmagazine.com.
1: Good evening, and welcome to a very special edition of the Motorsport Podcast. We're at the Audi Quattro Rooms in West London, We've just watched here in the room the terrific Le Mans documentary, Truth in 24. We're joined by the stars of the film tonight, and I'm gonna be introducing them very shortly. First of all, I would like to introduce our editor-in-chief, Nigel Roebuck. (laughs) Joining Nigel on stage, the two drivers who are the stars of Truth in 24, the winners of 2008 Le Mans, Tom Christensen and Alan McNish. Usually, these two get star billing. But tonight, it's going to be something a little bit different. Um, if you've seen the film, you'll know that the, the real stars of this film are the engineers who helped these guys win Le Mans. On stage tonight, we have Lena Gade and Howden H. Haynes. <clears throat> over there. Guys, the... Uh the film Truth in 24. It's a a tremendous documentary depicting your story from uh, Sebring to Le Mans and how you managed to defeat the Peugeots in in what was one of the great races in the history of Le Mans. I'll start with the star of the show, Howden. (laughs) The the finish of the film, it's just a, a, a wonderful shot of you walking through the garage having just seen the car that you've watched for 24 hours without stop, taking the flag, you light a fag, sit down on some, on some tyres, check your phone. Just tell us how you felt at that stage.
2: Um, I think just huge relief. You know, you're, by that point, I think we'd been awake for nearly 40 hours in total. And like I said in the film, that's our, that, that one particular race is the focus of our entire year and when we won under such difficult circumstances and certainly when you know, you've you got the rain and everything at the end of the race, that just puts huge pressure on everyone, you know, the drivers, uh, the engineers to make the right decisions. And yeah, it was just a complete and utter huge relief and I felt numb to, to everything else and even with the podium ceremony that was going on at the time, I had no interest in that, I don't know why. Um, all I wanted to do was go and find somewhere to sit down and just you know, be on my own for five minutes.
1: And that fag must have tasted quite good. <laughs> Very good, yes. yes. <laughs> Tom, you were in the car for those, those final, uh, the final stint when the key call of the race had to be made about which tyres to, to finish the race on. Um, as we heard in the film, you had a fairly uh, verbose disagreement with your engineer over that one. Um, what's this relationship like between the drivers, and the engineers in, in racing teams? It's such a, a close-knit one that obviously is built a lot on banter, but also on complete trust in each other.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really important. Um you, you know, at, the, at that point, you have to put the, the, the situation in, in both Houghton and me. We, we, we are very much dependent on each other. The worst thing a driver can have is on a wet circuit, you get on a too soft tire. And you know, certainly, at a wet or intermediate tire, you would, be, um, you would you'd just die slowly if you drive it on, on, a, on, a, on a dry track. We knew, which was also, as you heard in the movie, I think Alan, and they discussed that the, the, our intermediates, they stand pretty good up in the dry. Uh, but still, it's uh, it is a, a call which is really, really important at that time um, when the track is completely dry. They, Lina and Howden have the information that there will come more rain, but they need to call me in because I need obviously for the for the fuel. Mm. So it's a um, it's a very critical uh, part of the of the time, and I I'm sure I could still be okay on on slicks, but I think the the the, the, the choice is obviously obvious, but not at that time to me. So I'm terrified to be under, uh, on the, the wrong tire. And that is more, I want to be aggressive. And Houghton takes the, the perfect choice. And uh, at that time, it's, it's relying on more information. But I just want to make sure that I'm traveling 13.6 kilometers uh, around where it's dry. And I, that is sometimes that it's, it's a bit um, hard, mm. the words. That's, uh, that's normal. Yeah.
1: Alan, one of the key things about this film, I think, is that it shows all those millions that Audi spend on trying to win Le Mans and sports car races every year. And it comes down in the end to one bloke on a a pit wall, trusting what he's seeing on his weather forecast and making the right call, talking to the drivers, and between you, making that decision. It's a very human uh, sport, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I think it's not just that part of it, to be honest with you. Humans design the car humans build the car back in Ingolstadt, humans decide whether it's going to be a V12 or a V10. They put information into computer systems, but ultimately it's human processes and decisions that do the first part of building the machine. And then after it, we play with it as best we can. And, you know, this film was really good, I thought, because it was really a fly in the wall. There was only one point actually watching it back. I even remember them being there at the track. And that was when everybody was together, all the drivers with helmets on, and we're walking back and forth in the pit lane. Hmm. And I'd remember that point, but nothing else. And in reality, it just showed all the human interaction that uh, goes on that we take for granted. I think that's the important part, is we take it for granted because it's part of our work, but it's the critical part that wins or loses big races. It must have been amazing for all four of you then, seeing
1: seeing it for the first time, when you did actually see the film, and you had no idea that... uh what these, this camera crew were going to be producing. I still, I
3: still believe that Alan, he was mic'd up when, uh, when he peed in my seat. But still... I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> I got <enough>. an <laughs> answer <Still> you. Slow <laughs> <It's a little> old <laughs> race of <driver's laughs> trick, isn't it, surely? But
5: they, they did cut some bits out, though, didn't they? Because <laughs> Howden was just telling me downstairs... when he was trying to persuade you intermediates really were a good idea... and you weren't convinced. He said yeah. the conversation actually was a little bit longer than we saw on the. Uh,
3: that's <laughs> possible. And a little
5: thing. bit and a little bit fruitier. So it was, a, but in the end you did the right thing.
4: <laughs> I think the one it, thing uh, that you see on there in that particular conversation is the passion that's involved in it, mm. because when you're in the car, I don't know about you, Tom, but for me, when I'm in the car, I feel totally calm. I'm with the car, doing whatever's going on, but totally aware. But then when I listen back to some of the radio conversations and things after that, you think, crikey, that mind's mental. You know, you're totally out of it. It's a completely different person than you actually think when you're in the car doing the job. Mm. And uh, you definitely see it there. There's a bit of passion in there. Mm.
1: Mm. Lena, um, this year you were in Howden's shoes, uh, essentially, on the on the winning car, uh, the R18, which is sitting in, our, in our, the room here in the Audi Quattro rooms. Um, The pressure that you guys are under on the pit wall is is really hard to imagine. Um, Particularly for you this year, two of the three Audis were already crashed out of the race. Uh, All the pressure was on your car, perceived to be driven by the less experienced crew, although actually they are extremely experienced drivers. Just what was it like in those those sort of final hours when you was counting down the clock and uh, you knew you could be on the cusp of some great win?
6: Didn't think about the win because something Howden had always told me was you don't ever let that thought into your head because you can start becoming quite complacent. But I don't know if I felt the pressure as much as the guys in the back of the garage did because there were three crews worth of people in there that were not really that involved with the conversations that were on the pit wall. So didn't feel it as much. But the last 11 laps were the longest 11 of I've ever been through. Yeah, It was awful. <laughs>
1: And all this time you're sitting on the pit wall. You know you you can take the odd the odd loo break, but there's not there's not much opportunity to get away from uh, from the pit wall. You're you're basically sitting there for the whole whole of the race. I mean, how do you cope with the with the tiredness, especially as you're watching a computer screen constantly?
6: Uh, this year actually wasn't that difficult because you didn't think about it. The stints were only 11 laps so the moment you came back to the pit wall for um the start of the next one you're already thinking towards the end of that stint what the next scenario was going to be so you just kind of battled through it i don't think i ever felt tired i felt really cold on the pit wall because it was really really cold at night um but it it didn't really kind of cross my mind
1: you're just in the moment too much to to think about it
2: I think Dr Ulrich brought you a cup of tea and a blanket, did he,
1: he? did, yeah. We were
6: complaining we were cold on the pit wall, and the next thing I know, a blanket turns up, and it's Dr Ulrich. Well, oh, thanks.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that this strikes us about this film is that Audi is seen as this giant manufacturer going to Le Mans every year. We don't really see the human side of Audi very often. This, this film shows that. Dr. Ulrich is an interesting character. The achievements he's managed as Sporting Director of Audi um, in the past, what, 15, 20 years from the when he started, just incredible. They, they're up there with all the greats uh, of, of team management in, in our sport. What's he like as a guy? Um, maybe Alan and Tom could start, just in terms of dealing with drivers as a, as a human being that you have to deal with week in, week out.
3: I think he's. He's a very passionate guy. He's a very his uh, organization is very, very flat. He has, he's taking part in all discussions. If he can be even with the size of Audi Sport today, he would be at at every test at least at least some some days of them. Uh, so he's very much a part of it all and knows exactly what's. What's going around? I mean, what I think it says it all. If he brings a b- blanket to uh, <laughs> uh, to Lena, I don't know if he would do the same to Howden. But still, <laughs> I, would still I would I would I would still uh, imagine him over these years as the as the most understanding boss. I think it also comes over well in the film. Everyone knows what a great talent Mike Rockefeller is, and um, I, you've seen other manufacturers when somebody makes a mistake in full <clears throat> spotlight, they tend to say crack under that pressure and and take somebody away because it's easy but instead they give him a chance and mike has won le mans since
1: Mm. Mm. and we saw the emotion in that film from from dr ulrich allen um and this year with your big accident during the race this time around um you know he was in tears in the in the pit lane which is something we've never seen before that's for sure um what's it like being part of this team And, and for you. Winning in 2008, I know it meant so much to you. You'd won the race before, but it have been 10 years before that. Uh, yeah, this was enough to remind me. Sorry, <laughs> sorry <yeah. laughs> <I know. laughs> different stage of your career. You've been with Audi so long, and it, you finally got that win that you'd been after for so long. Yeah. With
4: what, what did it mean to you? Well, I think the first thing is, uh, what's it like being part of that team? It is a team, it is a, a, a family in a lot of ways because you know, if there is a problem, I'll phone Tom or I'll phone Dindo and you, we speak about things away from the track more than I have done at any time in my career with any other team or organisation, there's no question about that. And I think the longevity of the drivers and the engineers and the people with one unit, which comes from Dr. Ulrich, it comes from the fact that he places a lot of trust in everybody and looks to try to build people up, not to knock them down. Hmm. And uh, that, I think, creates a a certain understanding and bond that works very well. From 98 to 2008, it was from one side of Germany to the other. You know, it was Weissach and the Stuttgart side with Porsche and then over to Audi and Ingolstadt. And in some ways, they're very, very different cultures, but similar mentalities. Um, But from my point of view, I was just so pleased to get that second one. You know, when Tom crossed the line, It was, as H said, for me, it was pure relief because I'd had so many people saying, well, you know, it's been seven years since you last won Le Mans. It's been eight years since you last nine years. And I was starting to get a bit bored of it. Not frustrated, but just bored of that situation because I'd won pretty much everything else with Audi, but that was missing. And now it's not. No. But the third one is. (laughs) <laughs> just by the way. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, a lot of racing miles under the, under the bridge since, the, since 2008, obviously. So uh, for you two, a dry run since then, pretty much.
4: Yeah, but can I just say one thing? Adding on from that, from mine, and Tom will probably be able to give another spin on it. I think the 10 years in between just proves how difficult Le Mans is. Mm. Because it was my second year there with Laura oh. Elo and Stefan Artelli and we fronted up, we drove the car fast, we went round, we won the race, we took the trophy, kissed the girls, went home. That was it. Yeah. Turned up in 99. the guns. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on the podium. <laughs> then we... Uh, I was young. <laughs> but then I turned up every other year, and we led, and we had problems and this and that, finishing podiums and things, but didn't quite get it. It didn't quite come to the point until 2007 when, you know, we're leading by so far, and the wheel came off, and I thought at that point, this is never going to come. Mm. And I think that just proves how much you have to get right to win them all. And subsequently, again, you know, it's uh, been a little bit drier than... For me, it's standard, but for Tom, it's a massively dry patch. It's like the Sahara Desert. <laughs> can, no, I, can I ask you something about this car? I was
5: looking at it earlier this afternoon. Just peering into the cockpit. Uh, I just thought, how the hell do you see anything out of this? Because it seems to be, you know, the width of screen under the sun strip seems to be about like a letterbox. And the, the huge wheel arches. And, uh, you know, you've, there have been one or two incidents this year when you're, I know mm. reducing the power has made lapping people more difficult than it used to be and all the rest of it. But looking at it, it just made me think of. Uh, remember those, fa- those famous pictures of Fangio in the Streamliner Mercedes at Silverstone knocking oil drums out of the way? And, and I, 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 the one and only time I end- ever interviewed him, I asked him about it. he just, well, I just could not see them, I couldn't place the car. It's nice to be compared
4: to Fangio, isn't it? No, so, no, no, <laughs> no, but, but it's I, I, mean, linked way. <laughs> but it was the same last weekend from
5: Road Atlanta, the in-car footage. Yeah. I mean, the wheel arches look absolutely immense, and you think, how the hell can you place the car I accurately? think it's...
4: Uh, yeah, Tom will be able to say a little bit as well, but I think there's two things. One is that the number of cars have increased massively over the last <coughs> few years because mm. uh, it's such a popular part of the sport now. Mm. And that's in LMP1, it's also in LMP2, and GT and GTC. And so you've got more cars to overtake. And with the drive for efficiency, it's gone to a closed cockpit. And naturally, just by a closed cockpit, you have got less vision. That's fact. The second thing is the drive to try to have the tyre on the car for a longer period of time. So less tyre stops, so less time in the pits. Then you've got the big front tyre from Michelin, which is huge in reality. And again, when it's a bigger tyre, it's got to have a bigger wheel arch. And so there's sort of physical things that you can't really change very much, but it definitely changes the <laughs> dynamic of driving. Mm. Or maybe Tom just sits higher in the car and he, <laughs> can, <laughs> he can see more
2: anyway. <laughs>
4: <laughs> just for anybody, I do have a booster seat, by the way.
1: <laughs> it's true. What about this um, amazing... Era we're in at the moment, the rivalry between Audi and Peugeot. I think it it matches and probably exceeds most of the great rivalries in the history of the sport. Um, what's it like being in the middle of it? Maybe we can talk to the engineers first about this side of things. You know, the French. You have to race them week in, week out. Um, What's it like being in the middle of this rivalry at the moment? It's, it's incredibly intense.
2: I think it's perfect. And, um, you know, we cut with the, the end of the R8 era, it kind of became a bit too easy. And as engineers, and I'm sure as drivers as well, you don't want an easy win. You want to feel like you've earned that win. And, you know, if that's a tenth of a second, a second, whatever, that's a better win than, you know, by a number of laps. And, okay, at the minute we have Peugeot, which have been perfect competitors, we actually would like more and that's going to hopefully with the world championship next year um, and if some of the other manufacturers that are on the cards to come back come in, then that's going to push the championship on further and give us a harder time, but that's what we want. There's
1: a statistic that someone uh, reminded me of uh, this week, which you guys probably aren't going to like too much, but in the last three years... Peugeot have only lost to Audi on three occasions. Now, two of those occasions happen to be the big race, Le Mans, which is the one that matters most. Does that say something about the way that Audi go about their sports cars, that uh, Le Mans is always the, the priority, would you say?
2: Yes, it is. You know, Le Mans has always been our priority. Um, you know, it's such a big event in our calendar, and it's kind of where our history has has been made. Um, yeah, okay, they, they have beaten us on the other races, and you know, that's something that we obviously have to, to work on. And, and I think next year, with the World Championship, the, the focus is naturally going to shift across the whole board anyway. Mm. Um, But, yeah, we were actually looking at the same statistics after Petit
4: Le Mans and, um, yeah, it wasn't so pretty. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's one thing, you know, you say about Le Mans being the centre point of the year, you've got to remember that everybody is here because of Le Mans. Mm. And if you ask Peugeot whether they're very happy with their ILMC championship victory at the end of the season, or would they prefer to swap two of those for one Le Mans, they'll guaranteed said Le Mans. And uh, mm-hmm. the stat that's probably better is that Audi's won 80% of its fights with Peugeot at Le Mans. <laughs> yes. So that's the one we prefer to talk about <laughs> that other one. <laughs> yes, you can always turn stats <laughs> to your favour. So. Yeah. Yeah. You can hear somebody from Audi marketing at the back. <laughs> <he> went, <"Yay!" laughs>
1: Alan, the, the, the R18 is um, it's an amazing piece of, uh, piece of racing machinery. You survived this huge accident this year at Le Mans. Uh, which is a testament to the, the work that goes into these cars. Um, that accident, was it down to the, the, the lack of vision, do you think?
4: I don't I don't think he can just put it down to lack of vision of... because it, the, the insinuation in some respects is of our car. Because when I spoke to the driver of the Ferrari, Beltoise, the next day, he said that he can't see out of his right-hand side. Mm. And he didn't look, he looked in the mirror Uh, or in his camera, because they have a camera in the car, he looked coming into Dunlop Chicane, and he saw Timo Bernard, who was leading. And Timo, unfortunately, for both of us, as it's actually turned out, he went off the circuit. He just slipped, got onto some rubber, and went off in the exit of the corner. So when Beltoise looked again, he saw Timo the same distance behind but not realizing Timo had lost all the momentum and everything else and I was already round Timo and starting to go down the inside of him when he looked in the camera but he didn't see or look outside the right-hand side and come down in and I saw him there but I didn't see him coming down in either and the first I knew I was hmm. speeding off to the left-hand side thinking oh shit <laughs> 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 and thankfully I was able to finish the end of that sentence after the car had stopped rolling yeah. I mean
1: it's par for the course with racing drivers you know you go through big accidents in your careers, you know, you're very lucky if you don't. You've both had big accidents in your careers. Could you just give us some idea of the mentality of racing drivers, how you actually get back in a car, having gone through uh, something that you know, you know could have claimed your life?
3: Well, I would say with, with Alan, in this sense, we, I saw it with Dindo, and uh, initially I, I knew immediately that it was our car. I was really not nervous for Alan when I saw I was sure he would be OK. I'm sure the car w- was OK. I got a bit nervous when Houghton asked him and he didn't reply. Uh, Howden asked him two or three times and didn't reply. Then I got a bit nervous and then we saw the, the, the slow motion of that there was actually a lot of photographers standing. and mm. So we were a bit nervous for that. Then we saw the pictures of Dr. Ulrich and then we all knew that it turned out well. But I would say this movie is actually made shortly after I had a very big impact in, in DTM. And funnily enough, that's actually a little bit of part of that, that they never find me because they know where I am. I'm, I had a lot of headache through uh, that time. And uh, I, I went uh, a bit quiet all the time. So I was up, I always had the radio. I always knew that they were yelling for me, but I always knew it wouldn't, wouldn't be important. So I would, I would, sort, of, <laughs> I would sort, sort of turn up in the last moment, but they were of course <clears throat> frustrated at that time. But I think, it's not the actual, it is what the impact is um, of the accident. That's what prevent us to, uh, to mm. go back. We need to analyze why things happening, like Alan just explained about his. All these things are very important to get that into the boxes of why it happened. And then taking care of that. And then it's just to go on, over again. Because I think in a race team, that's exactly where you find the trust. You find the, the five P's. The five P is proper preparation prevents poor performance. So and That's like what we're about. So not six? No, that's <laughs> a, no, because Audi is with A, and, um, and this is um, this is what it's all about, and that's mm. where the, the, the focus is.
1: Nigel, um, I'm intrigued by what what you think at the moment about this, the current era of Le Mans.
5: Um, well, I mean, I'm never there because I'm always in Montreal. But it, but I mean,
4: 2012. You can yeah,
5: do. yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, In fact, I can remember Saturday afternoon when you had your accident, it just brought the press room in Montreal to a stop. Mm. Because somebody, I don't know, somebody was watching it on an iPad or something. Um, And I just remember this voice saying, Jesus Christ, that's McNeish And it, literally within 15 seconds, the whole press room was silent and everybody had flocked over and and watching it. And it, it did look bad. I mean, it's interesting, Tom, you were saying you, you were fairly sure, fairly quickly, that, that Alan would be okay. Um, but,
3: but yeah, because I, I know where it was. Yes, 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 And sure. I know the, the speed, and I would say, the, but the accident is frightening, I, it, I it agree. Was the it, the but thing
5: about it was, I, I thought it was just the way you just skipped <coughs> over the, the, the gravel. I mean, it didn't do anything, did it? It didn't appear to, it didn't even, didn't even slow you.
4: No, I don't <coughs> think uh, gravel always helps in these circumstances, because if you, it's, you know, if you think of, look at the bottom of that car, it's a big skateboard in effect. And so it just skips across the top. But uh, the gravel's there because of the bike guys for the MotoGP Mm. and they prefer it. Even though I've spoken to a few of the riders who say they don't like it because it actually flips them up in the air when they hit it. But there is, you know, there's always two sides from the safety Mm. um, point of the track. Mm. Um, But I think the important thing really from this one is that we're bloody lucky. You know, mm. I, I think was probably the least lucky because mm. I know how strong the car is. I know how much effort they put into the safety side of it. And, then, and the fact that they don't just go to the regulation on the safety requirements by regulation, they go beyond that. Mm. Uh, but in terms of everything else that happened around and about, uh, then I think Le Mans and, uh, and us involved are very aware that uh, you can't just take that for granted, no, and then no, no. the same result would happen again. Because no. I mean,
5: it's almost as if your car changes its mind when it's <laughs> right over the barrier. It looks as though it's going to flip mm. clean. And then it just sort of comes back for some reason, well, seems to, to honest, defy I law of physics.
3: I, didn't I haven't obviously seen what's below his <laughs> 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 uh, dafty. But I didn't,
4: for me, it was a backwards impact and a bit of a roll. And that was it, it was kind of over. I thought it kept on rolling a bit more than what I would have expected or (laughs) wanted it to do. Uh, But it certainly wasn't the biggest impact of my accident career, if you like. And uh, it was only the next day when I actually saw it in the back page of Le which is a French sports newspaper. And there's a picture of the car, you know, basically vertical there, and I thought, bloody hell. Mm. Uh, Because that wasn't the accident I was involved in. I was involved in something significantly less dramatic. Sure. Because I popped the belts, popped the door, got out, didn't have one bruise, didn't not
2: you, one didn't bruise.
3: You ask, didn't you ask for them to restart? Yeah, well it's
4: radio call, which I didn't get until afterwards, but...
3: Yeah, so I,
4: the first instinct was, I'm okay, yes. And I was sitting on the side at, you know, that 30 degree angle. Yeah. Yes, I'm okay, okay, the car's obviously, you know, can, it, can we continue? And uh, I sort of radioed you know, H, you know, off at the S's, da 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 can we continue? And uh, there was nothing, uh, HH, and I thought, oh, he's gone for a coffee or something. <laughs> and then I, had, I, I undid the belts to kind of have a look because I knew I couldn't get out until they had righted the car because of the door, first mm-hmm. thing. And uh, the guy, the marshals, popped the door on the other side and they looked in and they could see this fluid and they got really nervous at that point because they obviously thought sure. it was engine yeah. oil or f- diesel or whatever, but it wasn't, it was his drink system. No, it was not. It, was <laughs> <the bottles>. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, it was actually the washer bottles right. fluid right. that was just right. dribbling right. down the side here, because I knew I could smell the, <laughs> you know, the, the yeah. stuff that's in it. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah. at that point, for me, it was a case of, well, get the car back onto its wheels and let's get it going again, let's yeah. get it back into the picture. But when I realized there was only, I think, one wheel on it, I realized that the next nine <laughs> miles was probably going to be quite difficult. And that was it.
5: When Damien was saying about how you, res- you recover from, psychologically, in the part from having a huge accident, in a way, I would have thought the knowledge that you thereafter always have, ye gods, I can have an accident like that, and I'm fine. That, that also must work for you, doesn't it?
4: I think there's been a massive advancement in safety in the last 10 years, there's a big one through the sort of Jackie Stewart push yeah. on safety, uh, which you, I think, know more about than anybody in this room. And uh, I think there's been a big advancement again in circuit safety as well as car safety, and that definitely plays a part. But I think probably the biggest single thing is we analyze situations in mm. a totally different way. To so, you know, for me, driving on the M4 is more dangerous than driving at Le Mans because I know Tom even though he's in our car. But I know the standard of the drivers. I know the standard of the car. I know the standard of the safety. I know that if something happens, the medical service is (coughs) there instantly. On the M4, I don't know if H is driving or Lena or anyone else. I don't know anything about it. But uh, I think that mentality side where you compartmentalize everything... (laughs) That was Lena, not me, <laughs> meaning either. <laughs> I think he compartmentalize everything. And for me, it's a case of, right, okay, you know, had enough, understand why it happened, yeah. make sure it doesn't happen again, get yeah. on with it. Yeah.
5: The most scary thing I thought at Le Mans this year was that, because later on in Montreal, you know, we had the, the Rockefeller accident. And it's the fact that, you know, a stockbroker in a Ferrari <laughs> in the middle of the night on the Mulsanne, just wanders across the path of. Yeah, he was checking out. his stocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess he was. But, but I mean, that. It, that I mean, surely that must be the most frightening element of the whole race, isn't it?
3: I mean, if I. I mean, I saw Alan When I saw this one, I there was a lot of. Um, a lot of time where I I, I thought the worst. Yes. Hmm. That 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 one. We know the speed there and the time it, it took sometimes to get the knowledge back to us. Yeah. Um, I think that was so one
6: of the most significant things of that accident. It took a long time to get information back. Yeah. And in the meantime, we still had one car going around the track yeah. and yeah. asking what was going on yeah, and who yeah, was yeah, it. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure.
2: How long do you reckon it was? <coughs> I think it was 10 quite minutes. A, quite a way into the safety car. It was 10 and minutes, I think um, you had like to actually that? tell the driver that it was
6: Yeah. One of his
2: sister cars as well.
6: He had Mm. had literally come Mm. across the accident um, probably sort of 10, 20 seconds after it happened. Mm. And all we got back over the radio was how serious this accident was. But he didn't recognize it as one of our cars. And the next thing we knew was when um, the guys from the adjacent pit wall had, had walked away. We thought, ah, is that their car, and it turned out it was, waited and waited and waited until we could say it was Rocky and he was okay, but we couldn't, and Andre went round for another two laps before he said, who is it? And then we had to say because Mm. we knew,
1: Mm.
6: but to then say we still didn't know who it was and uh, that he was okay.
1: That's amazing in this Mm. day and age, isn't it, that that can still be the case. Mm. Wow. Well, a big part of this evening um, is the audience here in the room uh, (coughs) of the Quattro Rooms. Um, It's your chance to ask, some questions. So, I'd like to have some, uh, some questions from the floor, please. I've got some glamorous assistants with microphones <coughs> who are going to come around and uh, help you. So, uh, hands up, for any questions? Gentleman over here.
5: I was wondering what your fuel consumption would be like uh, with a diesel as opposed to a petrol. What, what kind of numbers would you be looking at?
1: Do you work for PowerShell? <laughs> 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 Howden, maybe you could uh, take this (laughs) one.
2: Yeah, no, obviously the diesel um, efficiency is higher than than that of a petrol car, um, which is one reason for obviously taking that route with the engines. Um, But on the flip side, then we're given a smaller fuel cell um, and we also are given a different size restrictor in our fuel rig, so that we actually refuel in a, in a slower rate as, as well. Um, yeah, in terms of figures, you know how long Le Mans is, you know how many laps we do, and you can find out how big our fuel cell is. <laughs> sort of an Good answer. answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions, please? There's a gentleman in the middle here. Uh, yeah, question for two engineers. This year, I think towards the end of the race, I think it was Benoit did a quintuple stint, um, which was inspired. Uh, Did you know that the the car and the tyres were capable of that before the race through simulation and testing or whatever, or was that a more instinctive decision due to the uh, necessitated by the closeness of the race at the time?
6: Uh, We knew it was possible. Um, we knew it was possible beforehand, before the race, not necessarily through simulation but through a lot of knowledge we gained um, in testing. There was a Le Mans test about a month beforehand. Um, but the situation in the race dictated that we had to do that with Ben.
1: Is that something common, that on the pit wall um, you will make calls that aren't yeah. planned?
6: Yeah. Yeah, because you react to the situation that's, that's in hand. Um, you, you have a game plan for what you want to do through the race, and you can follow it up to such a point that you're, you have an advantage, but the moment that you need to gain a bit more, you do have to, have to change it.
1: Now, when I interviewed Lena a couple of weeks ago for a forthcoming article for the magazine. She, she said there's no, it's not about instincts because it's all about figures and facts in terms of what you work with, but there is some instinct involved there, isn't there? Come on.
6: <laughs> I wouldn't say you kind of, oh, if that feels good, right, I'll do that. Um, Don't you? That's what I do.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
6: you always told me not to do that. <laughs> um, no, I, I think there is, there's possibly an element of it, but we tend to gain a lot of knowledge collectively over three cars and over months of, of testing and development that allows us to make some decisions, that's why I guess it's not always Mm. instinct. However, in the heat of the moment, there does come a point where you're not always using your experience, you are having to use a little bit of a a gamble, really, to to make a decision and to try and get that advantage. Mm.
2: And I think going back to your question about Dr Ulrich, or, you know, our lord of the four rings, you know, he, <laughs> he, um, one, one good thing about Audi and, and the way that we work, or that Dr. Ulrich allows us to work as engineers is that he hands everything over to us, you know, he's completely behind what we do, and I know in other teams that they kind of have a dictatorship, and the race engineers there certainly don't have the freedom uh, that we do, but at, but at Audi, you know, it's, he lets us get on with it, he will back our decisions and, uh, you know, he will provide his input where, where needed, but he, you know, that, that's one thing I like about where we are. Yeah.
1: Okay. Some more questions? Gentleman here in the, the green.
0: I'm just interested in, firstly, why Audi went to diesel. Uh, From uh, normally aspirated, you know, uh, petrol engines, and um, whether you feel the equivalency currently is uh, too in favor of diesels. And Aston Martin, I believe, uh, amongst others, feel that that is the case. And uh, I'm sure Nigel's got some views on the the noise of diesels versus the noise of petrol (laughs) engines.
1: There's a couple of questions there. Alan,
4: why don't you take the one about um, the uh, equivalency? I think the equivalency is a very difficult point, and I wouldn't like to be making those decisions because you're balancing a V6 in comparison to an inline six for a start. Uh, You've got petrol, you've got open top to closed top, you've got different budget, different mentality, different capability of engineers and of drivers. And uh, I think that when you're trying to combine that, you're not just combining diesel to petrol, and you're not trying to balance diesel to petrol. Coming from a European background, I'm into the best wins. However, having raced in America for a long time, I appreciate and understand that it's got to be a bit close. It's got to be a bit of a show. And as H said, uh, some of the races that you win by a few tenths are some of the most memorable ones. And so I do appreciate that side of it, but I have to say that I think that if any I put If Peugeot or Audi went with petrol, I don't think you'd see very much difference in the results.
1: And Nigel, we should
5: get you talking about the noise, I think, shouldn't we? The noise, actually, I don't have a problem with that. I think they make a nice noise. And the the thing about Le Mans, as I say, I'm never there, but I I do always see it on TV and everything else. I like the the, um, disparity. I I like the sound of a Peugeot and then an Aston Martin and then an Audi and all the rest of it. To be honest with you, Formula, the Formula One engines now, you know, they all sound exactly the same. Um, so the identity, you know, in the days when you could tell that's a matter and that's a BRM and that's a Ferrari, it's gone. So I, I don't have a problem with that. I think, I think you know, the, the noise your car makes is quite nice. It's
4: funny for me, there's a, I don't know about Tom, but for me when we went to the diesel, I found the mental fatigue over a long race with the diesel was much, much less because you didn't have that constant the noise. high revving drone behind you, effectively. Sure. sure. And uh, it was a, little, a bit like being on a long journey in a car on your own and not having the wife telling you you're going in the wrong direction <laughs> all the time. <laughs> not that, by the way, Katie, that never happens. <laughs> by the way, you know. uh, She'll tell my wife and <laughs> i when I go home. But uh, in that side of it, I think there's the fact is that you can't have the same sort of noise in 10 years' time as we do today. The world's changing that. Yeah, There's too yeah. many people yeah. getting a bit grumpy. That's Croft Racing Circuit, and you've got yeah, a perfect yeah. situation, an example. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, was true. it disconcerting at first to hear other noises when you first got in a diesel that you wouldn't have he- heard over a loud petrol engine?
3: I think the, the first time it was, it was really strange, uh, especially going more than, uh, what do you say, 160, 180. Uh, then you don't, don't hear the engine. So the, initial, the first down change you d- didn't hear because you're sitting out in the open the, the wind. So that was, that was pretty, or very interesting. But I, the question was also when the decision was put into the mind of uh, Beretsky. And that was uh, end of 2003. Uh, he, his own mind or <laughs> some people have pushed him in, in thinking about uh, diesel. And uh, that was when it, it started and I would say, in the autumn of 2003 mm-hmm. and the engine was running on the bench um, around Le Mans 2005 and obviously the year after it won Le Mans. So mm. uh, a rather short period from white sheet of paper mm. until it materialized and actually the, it materialized at the Sebring we won mm. in, uh, sure. in 2006 with the, with the debut of, uh, of that. And, um, I think that was quite a big shock to the motoring world at that time. Yeah.
4: Now, if you remember, the Bamber cartoon at that time was uh, from Sepang and all the engine blow-ups in Formula One that happened on the same day and then us winning with the diesel first time out. And the interesting thing for me is that I thought, OK, a first ever diesel victory in a big international race has got to have some impact. But about two weeks later, Max Mosley stood up and he said, Formula One's got to be much more fuel efficient. We've got to push this fuel efficiency side. And I didn't quite appreciate that it would change perception, you know, in that short period of time. Mm. I thought it was going to be five, ten years, not within a year where America would start to talk about diesel, which for them was, you know,
3: the devil. For yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. me, it was, yeah. it was really big news in America because the day after, I had to hurry to the airport and uh, the engine man, Beretsky, was there on crutches actually for that race and uh, he was in my car to the airport and we were, we were stopped by the big sheriff and he, he had his gun out and he basically said I was going too fast. So I had to go out of the car and I tried to explain that, sorry, I, I, I just went a little bit over the speed limit but actually we, we happened to win the race with a diesel engine at, at Sebring the day before and, and he got little really. And Beretsky came out with his crotches, and he put the newspapers on. Yes, he's right, and, and, and I built the engines. And uh, we got away with it, and we uh, hurried up down to the airport. And actually, it was, it was probably only two miles more than the speed limit. But uh, mm. we gave a few signed newspapers, and uh, so it was a big impact in America. I mean, diesel in America in general, I mean, you only put that on the big boats or the big trucks. Yeah, it's not true. really any yeah. on, the, on, the, on the cars. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: Well, having met Boretsky, I can say he could probably convince anyone of anything. So uh, he's quite a, quite a figure, isn't he, in the <laughs> Audi team? Well, Baretsky is like Max Mosley, though, as well. I mean, he
5: thinks the noise is actually a nuisance, doesn't he? Or, yeah, he I mean, Max always said, I, I can't get in the way. I can't <laughs> I'm can't
4: i distancing myself from Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um, another
1: question. Gentlemen uh, here on the end. I have a historical question
5: for you. You went to diesel engines, or the engineers that is, and uh, that was obviously an important decision, but um, were you aware at the time that in fact the year before a small outfit in the UK had tried to do this with one of the Volkswagen group uh, diesel engine, and did that influence your decision to go full tilt at that?
2: I remember the car, it was the Taurus, mm-hmm. and it was actually in the next garage to us whilst we were with Velox at the time. Which is that car sitting yeah. at the back. Yeah, the purple car. Um, actually, I mean, OK, our diesel program, as Tom said, was, was already underway at the time, and I remember what was happening with that particular diesel car during the race and thinking, oh, for fuck's sake, is this what we've got to come, you know? <laughs> I mean, there was, there was diesel and diesel and corruption everywhere. <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't really... Painting a very good picture for me, but okay, you know, the, the, the two programs are on a totally different level. You know, this was a very small uh, privateer entry. I think it was with, it was with the Torag uh, engine. Um, and yeah, okay, it, they were in the right direction, but you know, they didn't have quite the resources exactly uh, behind them than what we did. Okay, another question? Gentleman here in the green shirt. Yeah, question for the drivers. Um, are you really concentrating on your driving all the time? Did you ever consciously or subconsciously find your attention wandering to other matters or, or just like
0: we all do? I Should think I we answer? all do <laughs> <laughs> driving. I mean, sometimes you're driving your road car and, and you think, hang on, I don't remember that last mile. And it's really scary.
2: Does that ever happen or are you just so busy that your attention is is forced onto what you're
4: doing?
3: I think you get into um, a rhythm. I mean, that's what you really like to be into. And I think a rhythm, then you can have that, but I would just say that's actually where you concentrate the best. If you're not in the rhythm, then you probably notice all things. And that's, so it, it's two different situations. I think the movie has a very good one, and actually, I'm surprise you didn't bring it up, because that's Houghton. It's not necessarily the call is very important, that's for sure. But at one stage, I ask, I would like to know what car number seven has done. Mm. <clears throat> and there's two answers to that, or actually there's only one answer, there is shut up and drive. <laughs> but he, he gives a perfect one, he say, Tom, uh, let's not focus on them. Let's, you know, That's a very kind yeah. way to say it, yeah. but basically what, he, what it is, it is concentrate on your driving, and that is exactly the key uh, in this time. But apart from that, you are looking for the rhythm, and I think I've said it at night, you can get into that rhythm if it's not raining and if it's not full of traffic, but if you can find the rhythm, it's when things are working for you.
4: I think also one thing to add to that is we don't just get in and do three-hour stints for the first time at Le Mans. We do endurance tests and we do the Sebring 12 hours and various other things in preparation for that race. And so we've got quite a lot of time in a car prior to it where we're in for the same sort of period. But for me, the difficult part is when you then get a call after, say, four stints where they say, can you do another one, (laughs) and your tyre grip is dropping... You've been in the car, so if you think of being here and then suddenly having to drive at an average speed of 150 mile an hour to Glasgow, and you get to Carlisle and they say, sorry, you're not stopping for a break, you've actually got to get to Glasgow, then that's the difficult point, but you've got to force yourself to do it. You've got to really be strict with yourself when you feel that you are getting to that last end point, because that's when you can make the mistakes. As we've seen plenty of time at Le Mans being... You know, lost by silly accidents at seven in the morning by a car that's three laps in the lead.
1: Yeah. One thing we, we hear a lot on TV these days watching Formula One is engineers and drivers and engineers geeing up drivers, which is something we never used to hear. You, know, you get Rob Smedley these days telling Felipe Massa to pull his finger out. Um, do you ever have to do that with these guys? Good question. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Coming back from our last weekend's race, I'd kind of run out of inspiration quite early on in uh, the proceedings. Um, I think it's always been there, but I think with the media attention now shifting not only from the drivers but onto engineers and the, the people on the background, you're now just exposed to that more than you were previously. Um, and, yeah, when they're sat in the car for five stints, I'm sure it must get pretty boring and, and you know, you, you can probably lose focus quite easily. So, I wouldn't say it's uh, just g them up, it's about keeping them in the picture mm. and about what's going on and, and you know, what... Inf- it's difficult, it's, it's a kind of fine line between too much information and then uh, too little information. Some drivers like to be talked to all the time, like, like Alan, Dindo and Tom, and uh, other drivers don't like you saying a lot at all. Um, and I think it's just dependent on the situation that you're trying to go through as well.
6: Hmm. I think Le Mans was an example of that this year. They, the last um, stints with Ben and with Andre, had to talk them through everything to tell them what their gap was, what position they were in. You might have a pit board, but they don't necessarily see it when they're Mm. flying past you. Mm. And I think there was an element of maybe speaking to them a bit too much, but without that information, they could not push to keep the gap or to try and catch the the Peugeots in front.
4: Mm. It's a bit of a risk assessment as well, because if you get a, a radio call to say the guy behind is catching then you'd have to try to keep that gap as much as you can, the best way you can, so you maybe take more risks. If you're pulling away at a second and a half a lap, you know that you maybe don't have to make that last braking thing. But the one that H was talking about at the weekend, uh, I radioed to say, right, H, because it was after the repair, and we were 53 laps down. And uh, (laughs) I said to H, you know, can you give me some inspiration? He went, you're 53 laps down. (laughs) 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 Okay, do better than that, please. Okay. Four laps behind the next guy, (laughs) but it it is something. It's a small goal to try to focus on and achieve. And then you move to the next goal and to the next goal and to the next Mm -hmm. goal, Mm -hmm. because if you've got no information, you can't judge the picture. And you've got a a very narrow minded and view of that. As you know, Tom was saying about the the wet and the dry in the film. You know, we've got in the car, we've got quite a narrow view of what our scenario is at that moment and not the overall global view. Mm.
1: Okay. Any more questions? There's a chap at the back.
4: A question for Alan. I was just wondering if you could tell me, uh, or to us I should say, uh, whether there are any significant differences in your driving style uh, comparing your style when you were driving an F1 and driving an endurance racing, and especially given the fact that cars seem to be far more reliable these days? Not really. I wouldn't say there was a massive difference. I think you've got your style, and that's partly natural, it's partly the way that you've developed through your early career. And mine is very much an attacking, you know, fast into the corner style. And that's how I raced carps when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. And it's how I, I've raced all the way through. I would say that uh, the one thing that fits for me in sports car racing is for whatever reason, I've always been quite good at overtaking. And uh, that seems to obviously work with the that being a big element of the, the racing here. Um, but in terms of pure style, it's evolved through the years just with the nature of the car you're driving, but the fundamental style is exactly the same.
1: Okay, we're running out of time, so one last question. gentlemen uh, here in the, the center. Yeah. Drivers, um, do you wish the Mulsanne was straight? <laughs> <Do you? laughs> As opposed to having two hairpins.
3: No, it's not. Uh, it's not happens. It's chicanes. I would say it's different timing. I mean, both are very um, interesting. A big straight will make more efficiency on low downforce, but actually a straight is quite easy. What it is today, it's a lot of energy, especially with the downforce. We can run in the in the last decade at Le Mans. It's a lot of energy going into braking into these chicanes, direction chains which requires um, still you have an agile car. So uh, I would say the chica- chicanes, in a way, has given a bigger input in the way we, we set up the cars for, for nowadays than maybe back then. But yes, um, both are challenging. Uh, obviously, we approach Mulsanne corner with less speed, but we can certainly brake much, much later nowadays than we could back then.
4: I think you know, when there was no chicanes, you were, they were doing over 400 kilometres per hour. So if you think of the development in engine technology and aerodynamics and everything else since they put the chicanes in, I hate to think of the speed we would be doing. And uh, in just taking that picture into account, I'm quite happy with the chicanes. <laughs> Break up the boredom of the straight. Yeah. Well, on that point, I think we're going
1: to
7: have to... Uh, oh, we've got one more, one more question. Go on, one more
1: question.
4: Uh, It's
7: not a question. Um, I think it would be wrong to let the night pass without the audience expressing their appreciation for what was, to me, a Le Mans enthusiast, a most fantastic, interesting and exciting evening. It's a fantastic film, and I don't know where Defina is as the publishing manager, the publisher, but um, what about it being um, added as a a bonus to your subscription members when we renew <laughs> sometime in the year <laughs> future. Right, well that's a good yeah, well idea. <laughs> well on that bombshell I think we'll wrap things up. <laughs> I was going to say some more nice things. <laughs> okay, um, go ahead. Um, second, thank you Alan, Tom, Howden, Lena, it's for the ordinary guy on the street to be amongst our our heroes and our heroine um, and to be able to talk to you and enjoy your company is a real and a rare privilege. Thank you very, very much indeed for your time and for your your frankness in answering your questions. Thirdly, well done Audi. What a great building, what a great place to have an event and uh, I I reckon we all look forward to the next one. Last, but by no means least, well done, Motorsport. Um, Nigel, Damien, thank you very much indeed for the event. Uh, Absolutely superb. Um, On behalf, if I can speak for everybody, thank you all. Well done.
1: Well, Thank you very much for those kind words. You've also helped me enormously by helping me wrap up this evening, because I don't have to do all that now. I I would like to say thank you very much to our panelists uh, tonight. Um, It's been a real pleasure for me as well to listen to Anna McNish, Tom Christensen, Howden Haynes, and Lena Gade. And uh, and of course, thanks to Nigel as always, who's uh, always with me on the podcast. Thank you again for a wonderful evening. I'd like to say thanks to Audi UK for making us uh, so welcome here at the Audi Quattro rooms. It's been a a wonderful night for for Motorsport Magazine, and uh, I do hope you've all enjoyed it, and um, see you again in the next one. Thank you very much.
4: Oh, Tom's... Just one second.
3: Uh, Thank you for us. It's lovely to come to London. David Ingram, thank you for uh, putting this uh, nice facility up. And then uh, I was about to say that anyone can pick their car. They can pick a car and good drive home, right? (laughs) So uh, pick whatever you want. Anything is possible. And uh, hope to see you at another event with Motorsport.
0: In next month's issue, Simon Taylor has lunch with Red Bull team principal Christian Horner. So what better free gift to get when you subscribe to Motorsport Magazine than the Haynes Red Bull Racing F1 Car Manual, worth £19.99. The offer is available worldwide, but is limited to the first 100 subscribers. Make sure you don't miss out and subscribe today. You can save over 23% on the high street price. That's the equivalent to receiving two copies per year, absolutely free. Motorsport Magazine.
1: Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing.